0: Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest this week is Stephanie Williams, who served until February of this year as the acting United Nations envoy to Libya. Some background on Libya before we get started. Libya is rarely at the top of the news, but it perhaps could and should be, because it's actually a good news, or at least a hopeful news story in the region. Libya had been ripped apart by civil war for nearly 10 years since a NATO-backed uprising overthrew former dictator Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. Libya seemed fated to be a perpetual failed state. A World Bank Matrix published last year on the impact of conflict on fragility and endemic poverty includes Libya on a very short list of the most at-risk countries in the world due to high-intensity conflict. That short list also includes Afghanistan, the Central African Republic, Somalia, South Sudan, Syria, and Yemen. But Libya has a chance to break the cycle thanks to UN-mediated diplomacy, which was led by Stephanie Williams, our guest today. That diplomacy led to a ceasefire among the warring parties last year and a political agreement this year that produced Libya's first unity government in seven years with plans for elections in December. Libya's political institutions remain fragile And the transition process is tricky and uncertain, but the economy is starting to turn around from the negative impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and the civil war. The Libyan economy contracted by nearly 60 percent last year and is expected to grow this year by 131 percent, boosted by the political agreement and higher oil prices. I can't think of anyone who can put Libya in perspective better than Stephanie Williams, our guest today. Mm -hmm. Stephanie served for 24 years in the US Foreign Service before her UN post, and she is currently a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution and the Johns Hopkins-SICE Foreign Policy Institute. My conversation with Stephanie Williams about Libya and the prospects for political stability in elections begins now. Stephanie, welcome to On the Middle East.
1: Thanks very much, Andrew. It's great to be with you.
0: Let's start with the road to what is to date a breakthrough agreement in Libya that you negotiated with the Libyan parties on behalf of the UN last year. Tell us what was driving the fighting in the civil war? What drove the parties to a ceasefire? And what were some of the challenges you faced in getting to that agreement, which which could represent a turning point for Libya?
1: So we really do have to go back 10 years to the outbreak of the first Libyan civil war, the uprising against the Gaddafi regime. And I think contrary to what many people believe that Libya was somehow divided you know, what really happened in Libya as the result of the 2011 uprising, the upheaval, was Libya fragmented. It was like somebody took uh, a mirror and threw it on the floor and it shattered into a hundred different pieces. So really the the challenge, uh, the peacemaking challenge uh, since 2011 has been to gather all of those shattered pieces, all of those fragments and and to help the Libyans to, uh, to, to put their society you know back together. I would say the other you know underlying issue, one of the major drivers of the conflict is is the economy. Libya is a country very rich in natural resources. It's a one crop economy. It has the largest, the ninth largest oil reserves in the world and a small population of 7 million people. And the way those, uh, the oil uh, uh, reserves, the way that the resources are managed and distributed has been a central driver of the conflict since 2011. And then of course, after 2011, with the general breakdown in the you know, institutions, the failure uh, both internally and internationally to engage in a state building project, what you also had was um, the breakdown of security and in military institutions and the proliferation of armed groups. And then on top of that, this unprecedented you know, sort of foreign interference Uh, directly uh, in the conflict and the pouring in of weaponry and then ultimately, you know, mercenaries. Um, So this was all sort of a very uh, toxic uh, combination of factors which perpetuated the conflict uh, to its, the the most recent evolution was the 2019, you know, attack on on Tripoli by the forces aligned with uh,
0: General Haftar. Now, you've brought us up to 2019. What happens in the Civil War, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it comes down to two uh, general warring parties. And one, on the one hand, is what became the Government of National Accord, or the GNA, which was based in Tripoli and was recognized by the UN. And then the other was in the West, and that was led by General Hiftar. Tell us about how it came down to those two sides and what they represented.
1: So, yes, in the actual, the, uh, the battle in 2019 that ultimately resulted in the cessation of hostilities uh, in June of 2020, you did have these opposing, the forces aligned with the government of national court and the forces aligned with General Haftar and the so-called, you know, Libyan uh, National Army. But there are other major constituencies in this, in this country, one of which was uh, the uh, elements or the forces uh, that were uh, sympathetic or had been aligned to the former regime. And these um, this constituency, very important constituency had been totally left out of the political process because in 2013, you know, the for, the former parliament, the General National Congress uh, uh, passed a political isolation law which excluded this constituency from participating in the government or indeed for running for office. So, you know, again, um, it's, it's a complex uh, mosaic but what happened in 2019 is indeed you had, you know, an attack on the UN recognized government and then in roughly in western Libya um, you had uh, on 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 uh, in support of the government of national Accord the UN recognized government you had the largest mobilization of armed groups since the revolution and so uh, basically in uh, on April 4th 2019 that last phase of the Libyan the Libyan conflict kicked off, uh, and uh, then, w- with, of course, with major, you know, foreign intervention. You know, of course, initially, uh, Mr. Haftar had uh, quite a number of countries uh, as- assisting him in his effort, uh, and then, of course, you had uh, the Turks primarily come in uh, behind the government of national accord.
0: Tell us a little about the foreign backing. Uh, behind the parties. Why was Turkey on one side and Russia, the UAE, France, and others challenging what was a UN-recognized government in support of General Haftar?
1: Well, this also sort of happened in the context of a general, I would say, breakdown in the international community, which probably dates back more to sort of the 2014 period. But Certainly, you know, what you saw uh, in Libya was where there had been a fragile consensus uh, in the Security Council around the, the UN uh, driven, UN facilitated political process that in April 2019 was heading towards the convening of a national conference, you know, to bring together all of the different Libyan constituencies to chart a, a Libyan way forward what happened was uh that all broke down in in april 2019 so essentially you had anywhere between you know uh two to three mem- permanent members of the security council you know on the side of mr Haftar. uh and this was the Security Council that had intervened in 2011, you know, on behalf of the the, the NATO intervention. So if you're a Libyan, you're looking at this uh, this evolution or this breakdown in in the Security Council, and then a Security Council in April and May 2019 that essentially became entirely sterile, was unable to produce a product calling for you know, a cessation or a ceasefire and a return to the political process, which is why we, and I was working at at that time for the former SRSG, uh, the former UN special envoy to to Libya, Hassan Salama, we sort of decided to um, take a different approach. We had to uh, abandon the Libyan track because we needed to knit the international community back together. We needed to sort of try and rebuild that international consensus, including uh, the permanent members of the Security Council, but also the countries which you have mentioned, which were directly interfering in the conflict, and then the regional organizations, uh, the African Union, the League of Arab States, and the European Union. And so uh, the Germans. Uh, under the leadership of uh Chancellor Merkel, you know, took this on, they hosted this process, and that we built this you know international architecture which culminated in a meeting in Berlin in January of 2020, um, under which we constructed the different the intra Libyan tracks, the Libyan Libyan tracks of the economic track, a military track and a political track and then another overarching international humanitarian law and human rights track. So once we had, uh, you know, this again rebuilt this fragile consensus. And of course, during this time, (laughs) weaponry was still pouring in, mercenaries were pouring in. All of this in direct violation of the very commitments that these countries had signed up to, and of course in direct contravention of the UN arms embargo. And so, uh, you know, what happened in 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 the spring of 2020, and this coincided with the uh, the outbreak of the pandemic. Uh, and also uh, Hassan Salama's resignation as the head of the UN mission. And then I became the acting as as the Security Council uh, sought to find a a new special representative. Uh, What happened in this period was that uh, the Turkish assistance to the the Government of National Accord essentially uh, enabled them to Push Mr. Haftar back to expel him and his forces from Western Libya. Uh, they, uh, the two sides, um, you know, came, came together. <laughs> uh, there was a cessation of hostilities in central Libya between the city of Sirte on the coast and further uh, south is uh, a place called Jufra where there's an, a large military base. That cessation of hostilities held through the summer. We produced a ceasefire declaration in August through a track two process facilitated by the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, which I was a part of, and then formalized in the ceasefire agreement that was signed in October 23rd, 2020, by uh, the joint, the members of the joint military commission, which was under the military track of the Berlin process, so they formalized uh, the 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 ceasefire agreement, and then that allowed us to uh, really push forward both on the political and the economic tracks, and so uh, we we then you know turned our attention. To, um, to, the, to the political actors uh, and we took advantage, frankly, of um, the pandemic um, to, to really broaden the, the political process. Uh, first and foremost uh, by going beyond the traditional political uh, players Uh, whether it was the members of the GNA, the LNA, the parliament, and then there's another institution called the Higher State Council. Uh, We broadened it to bring in uh, these other constituencies, elements uh, that had been supportive of the former regime, but also to bring in a lot of women, youth, civil society, tribes, ethnic uh, constituencies minorities in Libya so we built this you know political tent we were able to do that virtually first uh, and then we also opened it up through digital dialogues that we ran uh, through the through our headquarters in New York where we had online conversations, Uh, dialogues with primarily Libyan youth. All of that, you know, um, uh, informed uh, the convening of the political dialogue, uh, which uh, the first session was held in Tunis in November of last year, where where the 75 members of the Libyan political dialogue forum agreed a roadmap. To end this long transition in Libya. Uh, they agreed a roadmap which put the which put uh, the target date of elections in December of this year, December 24th, 2021, to coincide with the 70th anniversary of Libya's independence. But also they agreed on the, on the need to form an interim unified executive to you know, start. To knit the institutions back together, and a chart the way uh, towards these elections, that uh, that process took us to February of this year. February uh, and on February fifth, twenty twenty one, the Libyan Political Dialogue Forum voted. Uh, and it was, a, it was an open and competitive and quite in a very transparent process uh, witnessed by the entire you know, Libyan public. Uh, they uh, voted on the establishment of the Government of National Unity, uh, which was then a month, about a month later, it, it uh, received the approval of the Libyan parliament, the House of Representatives, The other two governments, so the the previous UN-recognized government of national accord and the parallel government in in Eastern Libya dissolved and we had the first unified uh, government in Libya since 2014. So 50% of the roadmap was accomplished. And now of course, everybody is looking towards the achievement of Um, of the elections. The ceasefire has held. Oil production has been resumed because there was an oil blockade for eight months of 2020. Um, uh, Of course, there are a number of challenges uh, ahead, uh, particularly leading to the elections, which I'm sure you want to get
0: into. Stephanie, you've recounted just such an impressive um, diplomatic path and what looked like uh, a perpetual state of, of, of conflict to an actually quite, quite hopeful agreement by again building on the international or building an international consensus on moving toward a ceasefire and the and new arrangement. And then as you say, bringing the key, Parties together in a very large tent that that seems to be holding. And I do want to get to the path ahead. But let me ask uh, and related to the path ahead. But let me ask about a couple of the players. Is it your sense that Turkey and Russia in particular are playing a constructive role in this process? Both of them still have foreign fighters in Libya. I don't think they've agreed to withdraw those forces. I think they've both taken a kind of wait-and-see attitude. Uh, But tell us about your experience dealing with Ankara and Moscow in this process and how you see their their interests and uh, policies playing out in the months ahead.
1: So I did uh, visit both capitals uh, last fall and, you know, uh, met with the respective foreign ministers and certainly received their assurances of their support for the UN process. They are both um, participants, members of this, you know, this wider Berlin process, quite active. The Berlin participants uh, just met again in, in late June of this year. Look, I think that for all of these international actors, you know who do have their own strategic um, economic commercial interests in Libya it is it is fundamentally in their interest to see uh, a stable and prosperous Libya at peace with itself and you know frankly uh, a Libya that is represented by a democratically elected government that will then, will have the, the inherent legitimacy representing you know, the, the Libyan people to make the uh, kinds of agreements, to strike you know, the, the, the strategic agreements that I think many of these countries are interested in, whether it has to do with you know, military basing, whether it has to do with the uh, training and equipping the Libyan forces, you know, whether it, whether it has to do with, you know, their various economic and uh, commercial, commercial interests. Um, really, it, it is in, I think, everybody's interest for, for us to see that kind of Libya emerge. Because if, you know, things fall apart, if it all starts to unravel, We will again see a Libya that is unable to protect its borders, a Libya that is a haven for international terrorist groups, a Libya that um, is is awash in uh, all sorts of criminal and sordid actors who engage in the trafficking of human beings, of fuel, of drugs, and of weapons. And that, that makes Libya a danger, you know, first and foremost to itself, to its neighbors, and for international peace and security. So I mean, I think the degree to which the, the international focus can be on main, sustaining the momentum and helping the Libyans, you know, to, to come together uh, and to achieve this, this goal of national elections which, by the way, is a goal that's widely supported by the Libyan people. An overwhelming majority of Libyans want to see the achievement of national elections.
0: Are the interests of outside powers in Libya, Turkey, Russia, and others driven primarily, if not exclusively, by oil? Or what else might be involved here?
1: I think oil is certainly a factor. And, and so you've seen different countries uh, look at the Libyan problem set through various lenses. So you have those who look at it through the lens of counterterrorism, those who look at the country through the lens of oil and commercial interests, those who look at it, for instance, your southern European countries, through the lens of the, the terrible you know, migrant a crisis and the, the terrible suffering that the, the migrants you know endure as they come into libya and then this perilous crossing of the mediterranean so but the only way that you can comprehensively address you know that those issues those concerns is through you know uh, the support uh, and establishment of you know a sovereign libyan government uh, and and that can really engage in this this necessary you know institution rebuilding process, the application of the rule of law um, that holds its officials accountable for what has been uh, this you know sustained and unacceptable plundering of the country by you know the, the ruling elite, the political class, you know, those who have, had their you know have have bellied up to the trough for the last uh, ten years all of that can only be uh, tackled you know through this uh, uh, this this elections uh, project
0: what is your assessment of general Haftar and his role in Libya and is he empowered by the agreement on an interim government, or do you think his influence is reduced because of the inclusion of, of other parties in the process?
1: Mr. Haftar certainly, he, he gambled in, in 2019. He thought that the use of the military tool uh, would work, that he could accomplish through an attack on Tripoli what he wasn't sure that he could accomplish, um, you know, at, at the at the political table through through negotiations, through a peaceful process. I don't think that he can replicate that again. He simply will not have the kind of international backing because you've seen that some of his, you know, international or regional partners are, are now kind of engaged elsewhere. Um, so I don't think that those circumstances can, can be duplicated. Um, You know, certainly I spoke to Mr. uh, Haftar prior to particularly the meeting in uh, Geneva in February and he, you know, professed uh, strong support for the UN process. Of course, that's that's the kind of, those are declarations that need to be continually uh, tested. But, you know, fundamentally what we've seen is the maintenance of the ceasefire That the Joint Military Commission continues to meet. uh, That you see, you've now seen just recently another um, exchange or release of prisoners, which has been an ongoing effort, you know, really over the last year or so. You've seen uh, an opening of a major artery between the east and west of Libya, which has now allowed, you know, commercial and you know, civilian traffic uh, along the coastal road uh, between Misrata and Sirte. So, you know, you have there's a, there is a, a continuation of these efforts to maintain the peace, and uh, that is something that's going to require uh, really uh, sustained mediation inside Libya, amongst Libyan parties, and also, you know, internationally.
0: What is the Biden administration doing, and what more can the U.S. do to support U.N. diplomacy in Libya?
1: So I think the U.S. does have an important role to play, and I'm not under any illusions that, you know, you're not going to see the deployment of U.S. forces, you know, certainly not in the current environment, But certainly the U.S. can use its diplomatic muscle. The U.S. has, you know, this enormous skill in convening the internationals and supporting the United Nations as it continues its work uh, in herding, you know, the different international cats. I think it's important, you know, for the U.S. not to engage in what I would call performative diplomacy or... Sort of, you know, virtue sig- signaling on the need for elections without really rolling up their sleeves and, you know, doing the intensive mediation that that that's, that requires. Um, because there, you know, we have heard from this administration. I think they have they have at um, least really spoken out very, very strongly and positively on the Libyan file. Uh, And then more broadly, the president has talked about the struggle between the forces of democracy and autocracy. Well, I think Libya is a prime example of, you know, where if, you know, everybody sort of um, gets on the same side, if everybody pulls together, you know, indeed, uh, you you can have, you know, a successful model emerge in Libya, you know, through a through free and fair elections. that are held according to you know, the roadmap agreed by the, by the Libyan Political Dialogue Forum. So I mean, I think that's, and, and I think that the US is, will be pushing on an open door first and foremost with the Libyans themselves. Because as I said, you know, Libyans overwhelmingly, every, every poll that is conducted indicates strong support for elections the elections commission has just held another voter registration campaign very successful 2.3 million something like that libyans registered domestically and abroad for elections have a number of political parties that have been formed recently and also a lot of you know candidates are emerging for the perspective you know parliamentary and and presidential elections and they have conducted by the way uh, you know, mun- municipal elections, mostly in Western and Southern Libya throughout this entire period, throughout COVID and conflict, Libyans have gone to the polls to elect their leaders at the very local level. And now they want to do the same thing nationally.
0: Are the timetable laid out in the February agreement is an ambitious one. Uh, do you think that... Uh, The process is on track and do you expect elections to be held in December this year?
1: That's a very good question. As I said, I think, you know, technically speaking and they they have a very capable elections commission, uh, a very good technocrat, you know, runs the the National Elections Commission. Technically elections uh, can be produced. Um, Now, the question is, is the political environment going to be ripe? Um, I think the average Libyan is ready for uh, elections. You have, unfortunately, a political class which has gotten quite used to its perks. You have now a parliament that has been um, in place since 2014. Elections should have happened uh, some time ago (laughs) for the parliament. You all, you have this other institution called the Higher State Council, which is uh, uh, a legacy institution from the first national elections held in Libya in, in 2012. That institution, these people have been in their seats for nine years. With that comes access, not only as I said, to sort of the state coffers, but also this whole network of political patronage they find it, I think, hard to let go, but it's time for them to let go. And for the unity government that was formed, this was always envisioned as an interim institution who would have a very sort of you know, strict mandate, uh, which you know, should be put in a chastity belt with regard to its you know, budgetary ambitions. Um, and that, you know, everybody needs to be driving forward for elections. So you're meeting the, I think we're seeing the, the expected resistance from the so-called status quo forces. And those aren't just political forces. There are many, many people who have benefited, you know, from the chaos uh, of the last 10 years. But, uh, and then there is the question of the constitutional basis for elections, and whether the constitutional basis, and this really also gets into what are the prerogatives of the President versus the the government, there are those who say that you must have a constitution, you must have a constitution in place prior to presidential elections. Uh, and there are others who believe that a constitutional basis would be needed. So, you know, this is, these are the discussions that the Libyans are having now. I think you, we all need to, you know, sort of be cognizant of the fact that sometimes the whole use of the, the constitutional argument is used as a delaying tactic uh, because the constitutional draft that is on the table now is actually quite controversial. And if it, if it were put to a referendum the indications that there would be boycotts in certainly in Eastern Libya, but also among some of the ethnic uh, constituencies. So this is all part and parcel of the mediation that needs to take place amongst the Libyans themselves with the strong backing of the international community who needs to understand that any sort of backsliding could be um, a a driver of, of conflict.
0: Stephanie, thank you for your insights and analysis. I said at the outset that Libya is a good news story, or at least a hopeful news story in the region. And that's in good part because of your diplomatic leadership and role in the UN process, which has given Libya and the Libyan people some welcome and overdue overdue hope. So thank you for being with us today.
1: Thanks for the uh, very interesting session. I appreciate it.
0: We will return after this short break.
2: I'm Ben Kaspit, Almonitor veteran columnist, reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to Own Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision-makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel, Al Monitor.
0: Thanks to our guest today, Stephanie Williams, and thanks to our producer, Beowulf Roshlin. And thanks to all of you for listening. We will return next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for On the Middle East and our other El Monitor podcast, On Israel with Ben Caspit on your favorite podcast platform.